Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Renunciation and Return, to be fully known and freely loved. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 18, 2010. A few weeks ago, I read the little book by Elie Wiesel called Rashi, about the life and work of Solomon ben Isaac, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, later known by the shortened Rashi. Rashi was born around 1040 in Troyes, France, and died in 1105. Legends surround his birth in early years, and much is left to conjecture. But after studies in Germany, Rashi returned to Troyes and became the intellectual and spiritual leader of the Jewish community there of about a hundred families. His commentary on the Bible in 1475 was the first book to be printed in Hebrew. Wiesel observes that Rashi was 55 years old when Pope Urban II issued his call for the first crusade on November 27, 1095. Jews in Troyes fared better than many, but in other parts of Europe they faced forced conversions or slaughter. An interesting question then arose for Jewish leaders like Rashi. Should a Jew who converted to Christianity but then wanted to return to Judaism be received? Christians have had to answer a similar question. How should we deal with our own doubters, deniers, traitors, and betrayers who've confessed Jesus as Lord? How should the church treat ministerial failure and moral fault? To preserve its purity and integrity, should it purge itself of such failures? Or should it forgive and forget in the name of love? Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, and in Ted Haggard weren't the first or last to provoke this question. The controversy even stretches back to the earliest persecutions of the Christians under the Roman emperors and stretches forward to this week's lectionary readings. Some Christians were persecuted at the personal whim of a psychopath like Nero. When a fire broke out in Rome on June 18, A.D. 64, and destroyed about half of the city, Nero blamed the Christians. In his Annals, the Roman historian Tacitus writes that Nero punished the Christians with quote-unquote refined cruelty. Before killing the Christians, says Tacitus, Nero amused the people with sadistic tortures. And I quote now from Tacitus. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate. Nero opened his garden for these shows, and in the circus he himself became a spectacle, for he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer. Other persecutions resulted from systematic state policy. Under Decius in 249 to 251, Christians faced a horrible choice. Should they obey the imperial decree to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods and burn incense before a statue of the emperor, or refuse and suffer the consequences? 
Should they deny their faith in order to live? The last and most severe persecutions came under Diocletian in the years 303 to 305. In his book, Ecclesiastical History, Eusebius records the edict that Diocletian issued on February 24, 303, and I quote, It was enacted that the meetings of the Christians should be abolished, churches be razed to the ground, that the scriptures be destroyed by fire, that those holding office be deposed, and they of their household deprived of freedom, if they persisted in their profession of Christianity. End quote. In 304, another edict required citizens to burn incense to the state idols. The early believers responded to these trials and temptations in different ways. Some Christians gen genuinely renounced their faith. Others recanted, but did so with their fingers crossed, so to speak. Some believers tried to hide. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, fled. If you had money or connections, perhaps a pagan friend might have provided you with a labellus, that is, a certificate that verified you had obeyed the imperial decree. Some Christians relinquished their Bibles and religious relics to civil authorities to be burned in public bonfires. Then there were the so-called traitors, literally those who had handed over, a technical term for those who had betrayed fellow Christians to the Roman government by providing names and addresses. Those saints back then treaded a thin line between cowardice and wisdom, failure and fortitude. There were certainly many heroes and martyrs in those days whose bravery inspires and challenges us today. There were also many Christians in those days who failed the faith in greater or lesser degree for a whole range of reasons. Weakness, fear, deception, stupidity, rationalization, cooperation, and certainly self-preservation. They required the church to address very practical questions that resonate down to today. When Constantine declared Christianity a legal religion, for example, some believers who had renounced their faith wanted to return to full church communion. Some lapsed priests re-entered positions of clerical authority. What was to be done? Had the traitors committed unforgivable sins? Could someone who had publicly renounced their faith truly repent? How should the church care for Christians struggling with shame, blame, regret, and self-recrimination? Were, were the sacraments performed by fallen priests invalid? Or was genuine ministry independent of the holiness of the minister? What are the implications of the obvious truth that none of us lives a blameless life. I find it a very uncomfortable exercise to place myself in the shoes of those ancient believers and wonder how I would have responded. In this week's Gospel from John chapter 21, Peter is eating breakfast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with the resurrected Jesus. 
Dirty, wet, and tired from fishing all night, he huddled around a fire of burning coals. As he extended the palms of his hands to warm himself before the crackling fire, Jesus asked Peter, not once, but three times, Peter, do you really love me? And three times Peter responded, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. John writes in 21.17 that Peter was hurt by Jesus' query. The triple question evoked a painful memory for Peter. The last time he stood around a campfire just a few days earlier, he had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. But then Jesus reinstated Peter three times with the words, Feed my sheep. And of course, he went on to become the movement's leader. Likewise, from this week's epistle reading, in the book of Acts, we read about the story of Paul's Damascus Road conversion. It's a story of how the greatest persecutor of the church became its greatest propagator, eventually traveling over 10,000 miles to spread the good news before dying a martyr's death in Rome. Before his conversion, Paul was the consummate traitor. We read in the text this week, breathing out murderous threats and aggressively seeking to imprison believers. Long years later, as an old man, Paul wrote a letter to his younger protege, Timothy. And even in those later years, he remembered his painful past to Timothy with remarkable candor. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, the worst of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.13. But like Peter, Paul also transcended his past. In the words of Philippians 3:13 and 14, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Peter, Paul, and traitors of every sort remind us that some of the most prominent people in God's story of redemption experienced extraordinary failure. But they moved beyond it to become the people that God called them to be. Moses was a murderer. Jacob and Esau were conniving rascals from a dysfunctional family. King David was an adulterer who murdered his lover's husband. All these saints became what we might call successful failures. They were fully known by God, but nevertheless still freely loved. They experienced the liberating truth stated by St. Maximus the Confessor back in the 7th century. The person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone. For he knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment each of us who is trying to make progress. And now for further reflection, consider the words of Martin Luther. If you are a preacher of grace, then preach true grace 
and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, then you must bear a true and not fictitious sin. God does not save people who are merely fictitious sinners. Or from this week's Psalm chapter 30, verse 11, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. And finally, for the exploration of John 21 and Peter's reinstatement, see the book by Henry Nouwen, In the Name of Jesus. For books this week, I review Rhoda Jansen, Mennonite in a Little Black Dress, a memoir of going home. New York, Henry Holton Company, 2009, 244 pages. Rhoda Jansen was 43 years old when she returned to her Mennonite family in Fresno, California. It was a wise decision. For in the coming years, she learned that, quote, I should have never taken my Mennonite genes for granted, end quote. Her husband of 15 years had just left her for a man named Bob that he had met on the website gay.com. It turns out that he suffered from bipolar disease, abused alcohol, and was suicidal. Six days after she left, she was in a horrific car accident. Then came a hysterectomy. Broke and broken, she returned to the community that she had abandoned 25 years earlier. Back with her family and community, Jansen was not only broke, but broken. She came to appreciate the healing powers, the wisdom of the Mennonite ways, the tenderness of its worldview. Her father was famous in Mennonite circles, her mother a nurse with congenital cheerfulness. These are people, she points out, who oppose war in principle, who visit the sick with a jar of homemade jam, who eschew self-pity, and who care for the poor all around the world. Throughout her memoir, Jansen employs heavy doses of self-deprecating humor in disarming candor to describe how she was the maker of many of her own problems, accommodating, enabling, and denying. In one funny chapter, she lists her own hard-earned 12 steps. In another, she reviews the peculiarities of Mennonite foods. Childhood memories surface and provide further material for reflection. Along the way, we get an insider's view of the Mennonite subculture of Sunday school, vacation Bible school, missionary societies, and also its taboos regarding sex, education, and dancing. Without my husband, she writes on her very last page, I had somehow drifted back to this point of origin. I suddenly had the feeling you get when, after a long sea swim, you touch bottom and draw a breath of relief. You made it. Land ho. Sharks from this point on, extremely unlikely. The title of the book, Mennonite in a Little Black Dress, by Rhoda Jansen.
For film this week, I review a title called Jesus of Montreal. The film is from 1989, and it's made in French Canada. In Montreal, an aging priest is unhappy with his church's annual production of the Passion Play. So after 35 years of the status quo, he hires a young actor named Daniel Coulomb to play Jesus and upgrade the show. Coulomb gathers four other actors and together they put on a rather avant-garde performance. Their efforts shock the priest, who must answer to the church authorities but they also thrill the crowds who are deeply moved by the provocative message. In fact, Coulomb's life begins to imitate his art, which art, of course, was imitating the life of Christ. Beyond the stage and in real life, Coulomb becomes a Christ figure to those around him. And in addition to the good he does, he suffers the same fate as the original Messiah. The film begs an important question. To what extent do religious institutions tame the subversive message of the gospel that they claim to promote? How would we respond if the real Jesus showed up in our own neighborhood or in our own church? Jesus of Montreal from 1989, in French, with English subtitles. And for poetry this week, we've posted a favorite poem of mine by Jane Kenyon. The title is Otherwise. Jane Kenyon lived from 1947 to 1995. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. The name of the poem is Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 18th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.